0: Hello and welcome to Traeger Method Podcast. This is episode number 84 of the podcast. I am Jason Traeger, the host, the producer, the instigator, maker, creator of this podcast. Thank you for being here. I appreciate all of you listening, tuning into the pod. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Tell a friend if you like it. My guest today, I'm very happy to share my conversation with Leah Friedman and Britt Neubacher. Leah and Britt are old friends going back decades themselves between their friendship. Um, And um, I knew Leah, I met Leah back in the 80s as well. We went to high school together at San Diego High School. Leah was one of the punkers hanging on the weirdo wall where I uh, hung out as well. The one year I went to San Diego High School you know, decades will go by in, at this time of my life, and they seem like a couple months. Back then, one year, super formative, right? You know how that is. One year of, of San Diego met so many people who I'm friends with to this day. I mean, my gosh, Leah, Sean Kelly, Don Ancrum, John Goff, many more, many people that I know from that era. I met Rick Froberg. We talk a lot about Rick Froberg. That's what this episode is really about, Leah and Britt were very good friends with Rick over the past 40 years. Britt was Rick's partner the last five years, but they knew each other going back. And they tell, She tells you all about that. We get into all that in the, in the conversation. I was down at, in San Diego. I visited there for Rick's memorial probably three weeks ago, something like that. Britt was instrumental in making that happen along with John Reese and others. It was a very moving and beautiful event. I'm really glad I made it down there. I wasn't sure I'd be able to because I had this family obligation going to a wedding that I had told mom I would take her to and I was glad to go to the wedding but I was sad that it might make me miss the memorial but it turned out it didn't. We came home a day early from the wedding trip and I was able to book a last minute flight and get down there. Don Ankrum, another San DeGuito High School alum, Rick's uh, bandmate back in the day with in in the band Pitchfork, Don was already down there, had a hotel room and a rental car, so he was nice enough to come and pick me up, made the trip possible for me. It was great. It was so wonderful to see so many old friends and meet new ones like Brit. But of course, also a sad occasion going down there to to celebrate Rick's life with him having died. It was, it was strange on the plane down. At, for one second, I had this thought, it's gonna be so good to see Rick. It just came into my mind. Be great to catch up. But of course, that's not why I was going down there, sadly. As I said before on my uh, episode where I talked about Rick um, at, shortly after his passing, you know, at the end of our podcast conversation back in the teens. We left it saying, oh, this would be great. We'll, we'll do this again soon. We'll talk about music. Last time we talked mostly about BMX. I thought, you know, next time we'll talk about our, our mutual love of BMX and our, our history together, fixing up bikes and riding around. And we left it saying, hey, it'll be so great to talk about music next time. There was no next time. Shit. You know, you don't know, everything's so provisional in this life, constantly changing, nothing's guaranteed. Towards the end of my conversation with Leah and Britt, we sort of, they they share their takeaways, or whatever you want to say, I don't know, takeaway, that's kind of a glib way of describing it, where they're at, what they're thinking about at this point. In their digesting of Rick's passing that's what we they shared their thoughts about that and Leah shared some very wise words about um, in particular about uh, you know taking care of the vehicle we're, we're 50 we're in our 50s a lot of us you can't drink and smoke like you did when you were 25 we only got one vehicle in this realm you know if you want to stick around take care of it That's what she was saying. And another thing that, you know, and if I had to, well, what I'm saying is, yes, I second what she says, and I've taken that very much to heart, literally heart smart living these days, diet, exercise, get out there, work it, use it or lose it when you're in your 50s, right? I'm taking that to heart, but I'm also, my takeaway is do it now. Don't wait. Don't put it off. I'm trying to remind myself, you know. Another one that uh, I've taken away from this um, circumstance, losing Rick when we did, is I'm I'm using the example of his, um, w- what Britt talks about that, that you know Rick had his had his had his demons. He was plagued with a lot of low self-image and self-deprecating stuff and a low opinion of his work and his output, his abilities. A lot of that kind of dark stuff plagued him, as it does so many of us. I know it has plagued me, that kind of thinking, for sure. But what Rick did, in spite of that, is he put out the stuff. He put out the work. He shared the music. He shared his art with the world and made great connections with people. I mean, the crowd at that memorial there at the Casbah was a great illustration of all the connections he made. And that was just a fraction of the people who loved him and knew him well. I know, I know for a fact there were so many people that weren't there that had a deep connection with him. So, you know, that was just a small collection of people who loved him. I know there's many, many fans who never even knew the guy, but they just love his art and music. So, you know, he he was able to make that connection in spite of these obstacles, psychological, spiritual obstacles that he might have faced. And that is a triumph, no matter how you look at it. I'll never pass judgment on somebody who succumbs to, you know, addiction or whatever, compulsive self-destructive behaviors. You know, I don't support it, but I also don't, you know, I'm not going to come at anybody and say, why would you do that? I understand why we do that. And I also understand as artists, you know, sometimes you get in these habits with these substances where they fuel your creativity or they give you the devil may care courage to, to put it out there. The thing that allows you in your mind at least, to, uh, to share, to, to do that, to expand, to go beyond your uh, comfort zone is also the thing that can kill you. That's a difficult thing that many artists have navigated to various degrees, as I have in my own life, at different times. You know, there's a dance, of course, that many r- people in rock and roll especially, but all art, do so often playing with the dark side with the self-destructive the uh, yeah the risky energies and places and faces in order to to make the thing happen but then you know then you also want to move to the light because it's all about connection and making connections and sharing you know, Rick and the, in our conversation together back then, a couple of years ago, a year ago, whatever it was, uh, he was saying, you know, that for him, he just felt this obligation to give back to music, that he had gotten so much from music, he felt just obligated somehow to give back to it, which I, I totally understand that. You know, we get so much from other artists and from art and from music As creative people, I I, I know that sensation. I feel that myself. I still feel like I have a great deal of unfinished business and work to do. I'm kind of in a period right now of recharge, getting ready to go for it again. You know, it's hard. It's hard to continually produce, you know, especially in this Instagram age or whatever, the, the digital... Uh, appetite is endless. You know, we want to feed the beast 247, a new post every day, a new song every day, a new, it doesn't work that way for, for most of us. That's not the normal way of producing or sharing. Never has been. And now it seems like that's what's demanded. It's very, uh, it's not normal. There's periods of great production, sometimes collapse, regeneration. You come back at it try and figure out a sustainable way of doing it. Because if you don't, you don't last too long. You know, we're all seeking balance, I think, as people. You know, even if you're, if, even if you're living a life where you're you know, burning the candle at both ends, you still seek balance somehow, you know? Even if you're managing an addiction, there's balance to be, to be had, to be achieved. And if you're not managing an addiction, there's still balance to be achieved. You know, that's one thing I, I was thinking about, how like, you know, people call it like partying or whatever, not partying, that's so, not a great term. People will call, you know, the, the lifestyle, alcoholism, drug addiction, whatever, hard living. And it is hard, but you know what else is hard? Not living hard, that's also challenging but i find it very uh, rewarding these days you know my personal program i'm really getting into exercise i think rick uh, rick's passing has put a little bit of a fire under me in this respect getting in shape treating myself well but more than anything it's i've talked about it many times mindfulness meditation staying in the moment understanding that i am not my thoughts you know i I wish i i- you know I hope Rick knew that he wasn't his thoughts, these negative thoughts and stuff that that Britt and Leah talk about he was you know plagued by sometimes of course, that's just one aspect of him. The guy was a human being very multifaceted sweet person, happy person at times, of course, but also you know yeah, but I just hope that he he knew that I'm sure he did on some level as any artist I mean I understand looking at your work and being like, Ugh, this isn't very good. What does this all amount to? You put it, you put all your life into something and you put it out there and I don't know. Is it, is it worth anything? Is it any good? I don't know. But then on the other hand, I look at some of the stuff, you know, a lot of stuff I've made and I'm like, this is fucking great. I'm sure Rick thought that about his, his work too. I know he did. We talk about, that he was a very humble person, but also, yeah, had an ego like anybody else, an ego enough, they point out, Leah and Britt, to do what he did. You gotta believe in yourself, I know he believed in himself. You can't make art that good, and that music that good, and not believe in yourself. You can't, you know, have sold out clubs, like Rick did, and not believe in yourself. I mean, I believe in myself, and I've never sold out a club. I've never had a big show, I've never sold a bunch of work. I still believe in myself. And what I make, you know, that's part of just the artist's personality. You got to have some, some of that or else you wouldn't do it at all. But one of the things I've been coming to in my life is really just seeing that, you know, nothing, Matt, no success, no feedback, no praise, no financial material reward means anything if you are not a friend to yourself. You know, I'm on a mission to be my best friend. I want to be my very best friend. Doesn't matter what anybody says. I am my best friend. If I had to sum up my quote unquote spiritual journey, that's what it is. Or my spiritual work maybe is the way to put it. These days, that's it. I want to be my best friend. Then I can be everybody else's best friend. You know, if you're spending a bunch of your time hating yourself, you know, if, you, if, that, if that's what you have to do, you know, then I guess that's what you have to do. But if you don't have to do that and you can love yourself, do that. It's better. I'm talking from as the voice of experience. I've done both. Love yourself. It's easier. Even if it's hard to do, it's still easier. And it's better for everybody else. You know, I think it's safe to say that most of us, pretty much all of us, there are some exceptions probably, but most of us want connection more than anything else. A sense of being connected to one another, to others, to to ourselves, to life. You know, we want to feel a part of, not apart from, for the most part. And of course we go about seeking this connection in all kinds of twisted ways, toxic ways, pathological ways, and in all sorts of healthy, beautiful ways. But that's typically, I think, at the root of most of what we do and what we desire, a feeling of connection, a feeling of acceptance. I know it is for me. You know, as a person now who's practicing this mindfulness 247, really, meditation does not stop when you get off the pillow. Or out of the chair or whatever, wherever you sit and meditate. It's, it's, a, it's a way of life. And one thing, I, and what it really is, you know, if you think about what meditation is, it's careful attention to, don't just brush by. The thoughts. Notice that they're thoughts. First of all, notice they are thoughts. And then, secondly, what, what's that thought about? One uh, practice I've been doing lately is when I have a difficult thought, challenging, painful thought, painful feeling, emotion, I hold that thought in tender, loving, Attention. I don't just try to blot it out, escape from it, numb it, push it away, justify it. Uh, What are the other things you do? Figure it out, think your way out of it. You know, you can do all those things, but that's not what I'm doing these days. What I do instead is I just take it for what it is. Painful thought, resentful thought, envious thought, angry thought, hopeless thought, frustrated thought. Take it, hold it in kind, careful, loving attention. How do you do that? What does that look like? Well What I do is I treat it just like a baby. I do a visualization of like a little baby. Take that thought, it's crying, it's whining, it's screaming, it's whimpering, whatever it's doing. Take it, hold it in your arms. You know, visually, visualization, I'll do this. Hold it in my arms, there, there. What do I do when I'm holding that thought in my arms? Well, soften the gaze. What would you do with a baby? Soften the gaze, smile a little. You might say something reassuring in a gentle voice, there, there, it's okay. You know, this is a baby crying that just woke up from a nap. You know, it's not, you know, there's nothing you need to do right then. It's not like it's, it has a di- full diaper or something or it needs food that moment or something like that. Maybe it does, but the immediate thing you want to do is just soothe. You can, you can think about fixing the problem, the crying later. First thing is there, there, gentle, hold that thought, smile at it, soften the gaze, rock it back and forth. This might sound ridiculous to you. I don't care. If you do that over and over when you have these thoughts come up rather than doing that other stuff I just listed, all that avoiding and, and, and you know, numbing and stuff, if you consistently do that, it makes you feel better. The thoughts do not have the power to drive you to drink or to whatever, distraction, or misery, depression, cycles. It takes the wind out of their sails. And then, you know, they go from crying to kind of relaxing. And so do you. You know, when you're sitting there holding a little sleeping puppy or a baby in your arms, and it's relaxing, and you're relaxing with it, your heart rate goes down, your breathing evens out, and your mind and body, you relax. And that constant relaxing in the face of those uh, tensions, that those weather patterns that come up for us, the constant, uh, repetitious doing of that, it will calm you down. It will make these seemingly intractable problems of life different. They won't be as intractable because you're not living in the past, future anxiety matrix. But yeah, I will I will stop on that the uh that talk. You should check out my new podcast with Brian Gathy, last uh episode's guest. First episode dropped the Deathless Neverborn podcast. That's the podcast where I talk about this kind of stuff. Mindfulness, spirituality, Buddhism, non-duality. All that. That's the whole podcast. That's the point of it. There might be a little punk rock in there and other stuff, but and art and whatnot, but It's mostly that stuff. That's what it's going to be. Deathless Neverborn. It's on Spotify now. We're going to get it on the other platforms, but the first episode has dropped on Spotify. We'll have it on the other ones, like I said, very soon. Go over there. If you you love that kind of talk from me and Brian, that's the place to find it. Deathless Neverborn podcast. Link in show notes. But yeah, the uh, trip to San Diego, man, that was... Such a trip, seeing San Diego after 30 years, driving around North County, going up, went and saw the old house on Hygieia, went and saw, didn't go down to the old house in San Diego proper, but uh, walked around Hillcrest neighborhood, which I used to love when I lived in the city of San Diego. Went to the Pannikin up in North County, went to Juanita's taco shop, oh my God. What is it about that that those those beans? They're just like no other. It's probably lard. Don and I drove around there. We went to Balboa Park. Saw a lot of great people, a lot of great friends. Rick Marcus from uh, Crash Worship. Saw Jason Lane. He was also in Crash Worship. He was at the memorial. So great to see Jason. JXL Studio on Instagram. Margaret Nee from the San Diego Punk Archive, previous Traeger Method guest. I'm Margaret. Bobby Lane, future Traeger Method guest, legendary San Diego tattooer and artist, musician himself, Bobby Lane. He was in Crash Worship as a dancer, I believe. I think Martin Sprouse told me that. I didn't remember that, but I might have Bobby on the podcast real soon. Tim Mays, of course, owner of the Casbah. Legendary San Diego Punk promoter John Reese great to see John John played music shared beautiful words of course different combos of, of Rick's favorite songs and Rick's songs and you know, ones that he he played there was a fantastic survey of his work artwork there that guy needs a museum show Britt talks about that she's going to be an archivist of his work going forward. I look forward to checking back with, with her in future episodes about that. What else? Yeah, there's a lot to talk about. Um, I also went on, I went on a trip to Oakland. I went down to the Bay Area first time again. These are like, like I didn't travel for three years, basically, except a trip with Cynthia to, Cynthia Connolly to Montana. Other than that, I pretty much have been in the olympia portland area for like three years it's insane the, the covid times um, but i went down to oakland and cynthia was there she that's why I, I met up when she was there cynthia Connolly and to visit martin sprouse previous trigger method guest it's great to see them saw winnie wintermeyer walter glazer previous trigger method guest who else oh well god Nikki thomas previous trigger method guest Previous Traeger Method guest, P-T-M-G, 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 Nikki Thomas, P-T-M-G, Cynthia Connolly, P-T-M-G, Walter, F-T-M-G, Winnie, that's future Traeger Method guest, walked around the Mission District, oh my God, Valencia Street, I mean, I obviously all these places have changed since I lived there, I mean, of course, it's like 25, 30 years ago, so yeah, But yeah, it's crazy walking around Valencia. It's like everybody on the street is 27 years old pushing a $2,000 stroller. None of these people were born when I was hanging out on those streets in the Mission. Mission Street itself, though, kind of the same. It's amazing that those two streets are separated by just a few blocks, and yet Valencia is so transformed. But still very lively, colorful. Had some, yeah, really good food. The hottest ramen I've ever had. I eat really hot food. And when I order hot food at restaurants, it's almost never hot by my standards. But this was hot as hell. I thought I was going to have a problem. Incredible. I don't know the name of the place, though. So why am I talking about it? I can't recommend it to you unless whatever. Yeah, so that was a really, it was just wild to go on three trips. I went boom to Oakland, boom to the wedding boom, to San Diego, all with like a day between those three trips, all to places that have uh, um, hi- hi- a history for me. The wedding was up in Anacortes area, Guimas Island, which I I've, you know was in a relationship with a woman from there and I have a lot of friends in that area, musical people, Phil Elverm, Brett Lunsford, people like that up there. Love that place. The Skagit Valley. So beautiful driving through there. God. Anacortes. I love that place. Guimas Island. Went up to Cousin Devin's wedding. That was really, really beautiful. Interesting. Just a lot, a lot of being present for what is. (laughs) San Diego trip. The flight down there was the first time I'd been on a plane. Well, no, because I went to Oakland before that. that was, both those trips were, the Oakland trip was just nothing. I was like flying. It's so easy. Alaska Airlines to Oakland It's like an hour-long flight. You go up, you go down, boom. It was comfortable, not crowded at all. The flight home, though, on the weird last-minute flight, from, the one from uh, San Diego, way down was fine. The way back, oh, my God seven hour overnight layover in Denver frontier airlines starting to understand, uh, you know, when people talk about like air travel now being insane, just jam packed like sardines in this thing. The, the terminal is one of these situa- social situations. I could not believe the, uh, The terminal, like every single available seat in every restaurant, in every seating area was full. There were more people than seats. So dense. Nobody, I mean nobody wearing a mask. Not one person that I saw. Elderly, infirm, no one. I mean, I know people got COVID at the memorial, the Rick Memorial. I mean, Rick from uh, Crash Worship, who I want to have on the... uh, Rick Gretchen, I should say. He's, he's more than just from Crash Worship. Uh, but Rick Gretchen, he got COVID. I don't know if he got it at the memorial itself, but uh, you know, California COVID numbers are crazy. It's wild that nobody's... I wore a mask and I was like, am I insane wearing a mask in this super... Like no one's wearing one. Am I weird? But I didn't get COVID on that trip. So weird or not, who cares? I'm okay with being weird, obviously. You've heard the podcast. You've heard me talk about my life. I am okay with being weird. I better be. Because if I'm not, I am in trouble. What else do I want to say about this conversation? Leah, Britt, it's wonderful to talk with both of them. I think they share some beautiful stuff, some difficult stuff. And I really respect both of them. And I really appreciate them talking about Rick on the pod. And I celebrate again, I celebrate Rick for everything he shared with the world, for his life, for who he is and what he did. It's a victorious life. I salute you, Rick Froberg, forever. And uh, I salute you, dear listener, for tuning into the pod. I salute all the friends I met, all of Rick's beloved friends uh, that I met for the first time at the, at the memorial. So many cool people, real testimony to the person to have so many amazing people. And like I said, that was just a fraction of the people he knew who, and who loved him. So I salute all the people who weren't there who loved Rick and who he loved. Family, friends, I salute all of you. You're doing it. You made it. You made it here to listen to this pod. You made it. That's a victory too. Let's celebrate ourselves. Let's be our own best friends. Let's be one another's best friends. Happy late summer. Fall is coming. It's going to be cool time. Literally, it's going to cool off. We got a crazy 2024 around the corner. You know, my God, let's strengthen ourselves now. Take care of yourselves. Get in the habit of taking care of yourself now. Don't start the self-care program around election day next year. Don't do that. Start it now. That's that's the thing I'm going to say to you guys. Let's start it now. If you're not already on that self-care program, start it now. All right. I love you all. Thank you so much for listening, supporting the pod. If you like it, tell a friend. If you love it, Traeger Method Patreon. Thank you. Got some great conversations coming up. We're going to have a lot of San Diego people, a lot of other great artists, thinkers, friends. Kicking it into high gear here at the Traeger Method Podcast. In honor of Rick, don't wait. Got some music coming out. I'm going to put that stuff out again. Who cares? You like it or you don't like it, I'm going to put it out got art coming you know whatever that means not holding back okay please enjoy my conversation with leah friedman and Britt neubacher rick froberg forever <laughs> Hello and welcome Leah and Britt to the Traeger Method Podcast. So good to have you both.
1: Hello.
2: Hello. Thank you.
0: Now, Leah and I, we've known each other going back to, when do you suppose we met?
2: We met in high school.
0: So like 85 or something?
2: Yeah. 80. Well, it'd have to be before that because I think I left high school in 85 or 86. So yeah, like 84, 85.
0: 84, 85. Okay. So that's that's the way back machine. And Britt and (laughs) I are meeting... Well, we've we've just met. Finally. I'm so glad to meet you.
1: I love it. Same.
0: So I I heard you speak, of course, at uh, Rick's Memorial. I loved your words. Mm -hmm. And I've loved your presence on Instagram, uh, running the Rick Froberg Forever Instagram. Mm -hmm. I'm sure anybody who listens to the pod uh, and is a fan or friend um, follows you as well. I would imagine if you don't, you got to. So how... Let's just start by let me just ask what was your what was both of your um, experiences with the memorial um, that we were just at and what roles did you have in making it a reality and what was your experience of it looking back?
2: Well, Britt made it all happen uh, with um, Thad and John. They were the catalyst to the whole thing. So, um, and Tim, of course, being amazing as he always is. Um, I was just a worker bee. Not just. No.
0: (laughs) So what was it like for you putting that together?
2: Well, it was interesting.
1: Um, You know, there's been this kind of incredible medicine um, attendant in this process from the very beginning, um, which is, you know, to use our creativity in the service of Rick. And it's what he inspired. It's the most natural thing to do, and playing the party was one of those opportunities. I personally had an interesting experience because I got the plague. I got COVID for the first time a um, couple weeks before, and I got clobbered. So you know, bad timing. I was there was so much I wanted to be doing, um, needed to be doing, and it was just another exercise in surrender and. Remembering that this isn't on me, that there is a legion of people to support this process and to show up for Rick, which they did, of course. So I finally got a negative three or four days before and jumped in. Yeah. The timing was actually impeccable, as usual, right? And it all worked out. It was incredible. And, you know, the memorial itself, I found very cathartic, it was super emotional as you would, you know, imagine Um, you were there. But more than anything, it just felt like what we should be doing and connecting with Rick Rick and connecting with each other. New connections, old connections. Some people, you know, hadn't seen each other in 25 years. And it was incredible. It was a very powerful, beautiful um, tribute. And I feel closer to his people now um you know a lot of his people have been my people throughout the years but there were many that i didn't get to meet So he had so many and so yeah it's it's just been a beautiful sort of beginning point in a strange way
0: for the new reality
1: for the new reality that's right
0: how did you and leah meet how did the two of you become friends
1: okay i'm gonna talk again (laughs) because i love this story so much (laughs) Um, shit, I think I was probably 14. Before, so, I think before I even met Rick, like maybe a year before, I, well, around the same time. Anyway, um, I walked into Off the Record at the time, it was on 101 in Encinitas, and Leah was the single, the only record store worker. Um, that was nice enough to talk to people who needed some guidance wanted some guidance she was only a few years older than me but she just seemed like you know the coolest she was a so goddess cool. i mean so cool so so cool i won't tell them what you're wearing but boy i want My to
3: God,
0: come don't. on tell us
1: <laughs> no because then i'd have to tell them what i was wearing was really
0: let's, let's go there let's go there oh yeah, no.
1: it, it was let's just say it was like uh 1988
0: okay Susie and the Banshees oh. was in there, maybe? No.
1: Um, there was a lot going on.
2: There was a lot yeah. going on. <laughs> yeah.
1: I think Leah was definitely rocking some religious um iconography that was really hot.
3: In my hair.
1: Yeah. In the way that Leah could do. Uh-huh. And I, I'm sure I had a crop top and some like, you know, assless <laughs> or something with highs. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It so worked you, so you meet the goddess and it was it love at first sight friendship at first sight
2: it wasn't friendship at first sight I don't think I mean I we met each other and then we and we've actually tried to figure this out before, but we came back together with a women's cooperative that we were in called otru media and I feel like that's when we really strengthened our friendship? Brit, do you think that that's correct? I do. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I thought we were friends immediately cuz I was obsessed with you, but pretty sure it wasn't <laughs> official until we actually started hanging out.
0: <laughs> so what yeah. was that what was and the med- media collective?
2: Ocho Media um was a collective of women who were just really interested in um inserting ourselves into a really male dominated world of punk and we did a lot of really cool things um, you know from everybody gets their own speculum and gets to look at their cervix to putting on art shows and putting on music shows and yeah we did a lot of really great things and we would just meet in sort of the style of this sort of set you know first or Second wave feminism, where we'd sort of like you know come together and talk about things, and it was a really powerful thing. And one of the things that I loved about it was that there were people from different places in San Diego, different ages, and um, definitely it was nice to have some BIPOC members in there as well. So it was it was a really good experience.
0: Where did you go from there as a, as friends?
2: Oh my gosh, it just got better and better. Yeah, we just continued to to really um our our friend circles continued to orbit each other in the way that San Diego and North County friendships orbit each other. And I Brit was involved in my diorama club for I think 10, 15 years, did we figure out that we did it for? 10 yeah, years? That's right.
0: Uh-huh. F- um, 15 year diorama club. Tell me about that.
2: Rick yeah. inspired it, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Well, Rick and Amelia had a diorama club in New York. And so Amelia was like, we have this diorama club. And I was like, oh, that's a really good idea. So we started a diorama club where every month we would have a theme and we it would be a theme and then often a medium. So uh, for example, it would be like music and candy, and then people would make record albums out of candy and puff pastry and frosting and marzipan it was amazing
0: so dioramas um, we're talking like a box with like objects arranged in them in a scene
2: yeah but we didn't we didn't we didn't want to make our confines so structured Mm -hmm. so we allowed ourselves to uh make a diorama whatever it would be i we all just like tiny things
0: oh i see yeah, it was little, great. Little collaborative art making, mm-hmm. and this must be photo. photo uh, you must have photographed these things, and do you have an oh, archive yes. of these? Yes. Oh, I want to see some the, images to I share. Have
2: a, I have a Flickr stream. I can I can share with you.
0: Oh, awesome! I look forward to that. So, how did both of you meet, Rick or hmm. Leah? You met him first, right?
2: Well, yeah. See, I. <laughs> the 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 people who are listening to this podcast will at this point be laughing because i am the okay. person in the world who never remembers when anything happened and which is the perfect person to have on a podcast about what's happening <laughs> so i i know that i have a picture of all of us in off the record and i know that when i worked it off the record i was probably uh 18 or 19 So I know that it was around that time. I have no idea how we met. I would imagine, and the story that I have in my head is that we met at the Danforth building and that Gabe Voiles and Travis Nelson and Rob Crow were all probably fans and probably uh, went to go talk to him at some point and... Then it all sort of snowballed from there because Rick was a really big fan of Denver's. So then our groups just sort of started intermingling.
0: Tell people what the Danforth building was.
2: Sorry, the Danforth building was the building that was above Old Loose on the corner of 1st and D in Encinitas, California.
0: This is right there on the 101.
2: Yep. And a lot of people live there.
0: Yeah. Legendary place.
2: Yep. So, yeah, so that's that I, you know, I think that that was it. I and then Rick and I uh, lived together in a couple of different um, houses platonically. Uh, We had a we lived together at the Third Street house. We lived together at the house on Evergreen. And yeah, so we lived together for a number of years.
0: What was that scene like then? What was Rick, uh, what bands, what was he doing musically at that point?
2: Rick would have been doing Drive Like Jehu at that point. And one of the things that, what I mean, you know, I really try not to do the salad days thing, but it was a magical time in Encinitas. It really was. And the music that was coming out and the things that we were doing and the houses that we were living in together and the body surfing that we were doing <laughs> was magic one of the things i remember was that that drummers were t- short supply so we were always you know we were always looking for drummers and i remembered uh an old boyfriend of mine from high school i said but he's trouble but he's a really good drummer his name's lee chapman and uh so then uh, Lee came and was playing music with Denver and with Gabe and they were in Power Dresser and Rob and Travis and Manolo were in Heavy Vegetable. And then there was of course, Boilermaker and um, God, there were so many bands and we, and it was all, you know, Lucadia core. It was all Encinitas. So and they all played together and they all supported each other in this really amazing way. You know, somebody would 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 get a show and they would say like, oh, you know, I think there's room for another band. You know, can we see if we can get another band in here? And they would ask a friend, you know, to come and join them. And it was you know, a way of supporting each other with a, that, you know, $9.15 that you would get from the door.
0: Yeah. where most of the shows happening, were at like the Shea Cafe or? Yeah, were they are
2: happening actually all over. That was mm-hmm. the thing because in Encinitas, we didn't have a lot of venues, right? So they would be playing, um, it would even, you know, like places like Jabberjaw and uh, very weird places in Orange County at like college campuses. Um, so you kind and of then- take,
0: take Encinitas on the road?
2: Take it on the road. Yeah. And then, of course, the the pop-ups that they would do in the Lou's Records parking lot, which always cracked me up, what where they would like? Just, like, they would just drive up and unload and play like one song and like <laughs> pack up and leave. But, ha- but half of them worked there. And Lou kind of, you know, he was sweet about it.
0: Nice. So, yeah. Britt, Brit, were you going to these shows, like the pop-up shows?
1: Sure. I was. But that's not um, how I met Rick. How did you meet I have to tell the story because it's kind of cute. So um, we both worked at a health food store called Community Market. You may remember.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: He works there before I did, but he would come through my line when I worked there and was this, you know, moppy headed, lanky, fucked up teeth, really shy, really awkward, really sweet guy. And I didn't know at the time that he was in bands, I think he had just maybe started with Pitchfork and he invited me over to the Danforth building where he lived uh, to make me dinner one night. And I'll never forget what he made me to this day. I know every single ingredient. I can still taste it. It was the best meal of my life. And he well, did. Recreate my God, what because was
2: Britt, it? Britt, <laughs> Britt, we, we, we compared notes, remember? Because that was the Rick meal. It was so good.
0: The one he pulled out oh, to impress people.
1: Yeah, yeah I guess so. Oh, yeah. It, it might have been tofu, but man, you he gonna... altered it for because I was vegan at the time and he was really struggling, but it came out incredible.
0: What what is what <laughs> is the Rick's what is the Rick special meal?
1: It basically so we argued about it, you know, for years later because he has a different memory, but essentially he was trying to make like a a palak paneer, but a vegan mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. But he made it with tofu and then he didn't have rice. So he used like penne pasta. And then for the sauce, he, you know, it's, I was a vegan, but he used yogurt and I didn't say anything because whatever. <laughs> it was awesome. And lemon and tamari. And then he threw in, you know, like mushrooms, onions, cherry tomatoes, spinach, and uh, something about the combo and lots of garlic, of course. Nice. Um, yeah, and it was just outstanding.
0: You got yeah, you got like to write that down, tomatoes, and we, we should we should share that really we should good. share that recipe.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. the tomatoes and the spinach somehow made it. It was super <laughs> magic. Yeah,
1: nice.
3: exactly. And
1: he was super into. I I just went through his last frozen. <laughs> his pack of frozen spinach. Cause he was still really into that and it worked. It was a good additive, but anyway, so I, there was no place for us to hang out because Simon had the living room and Rick had the bedroom.
0: This is Simon so, from crash worship. Yeah,
1: yeah, correct. Lovely man. Um, and so we went into his bedroom to eat and I sat on his bed and like a gentleman, he took the chair across from the bed and we had a lovely night I looked at his Alan Watts books and, um, I saw him looking at me and kind of doing some math, I think. (laughs) We were five minutes apart and called it a night. I had my boyfriend come pick me up.
0: (laughs) Sure, he loved that.
1: (laughs) And we, um, because Rick really was a sensible guy, there was definitely a connection there. Um, But he decided I was jailbait and would be better off being my friend. And I'm really glad that happened because we formed a fast and very solid friendship for the next 30 years before we got together is more than that.
0: Wow, that's beautiful. I agree. <laughs> so what what was uh, what are your memories of that time? What made that time in Encinitas so special? Both of you, um, when you talk about it being a magical time, besides just the bloom of youth, what, what else made that era in, in Encinitas, North County? Are you from North County, Encinitas, Britt?
1: No, I'm actually from Oahu. um, Okay. Yeah. So I moved in high school, um, mid mid through high school. But Mm -hmm. to that part of San Diego. Yeah. But it was perfect because we were super feral uh, in Hawaii and the same was true in North County. I was really glad to fall in with that. I'm sure it was deliberate. I sought it out. Mm -hmm. Um, I came from like kind of a skate punk world in um, Hawaii. So It was a natural sort of, um, you know, home for me to find in these people. And we had a blast. I mean, I just remember feeling so free and inspired. There was always shit going on any day of the week, weekend or not. People and Rick and I would talk about this, you know, until, you know, he died where we were, we didn't realize how special it was at the time we were having a great time. Um, but looking back, the the DIY ethos and how much of a fire we had in our bellies to just always be doing, 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 creating, not waiting around for people to make it happen for us, that we had this impulse, you know, and as Rick would say, maybe we didn't always have taste, but we had the, the energy <laughs> and... <laughs> You know, not having taste didn't stop us. Looking back, you know, it was very eclectic. We would also talk about not realizing at the time that we knew so many freaks. Like, and I'm not just saying creative people and, you know, um, outsiders, but like actually really insane people. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't know that wasn't a thing everywhere.
3: In the yeah.
0: same way, that- who um, and you know when I think of Encinitas, Lucadia, especially Lucadia, um, there is a certain you know it's known as kind of a Bohemian zone, a kind of uh, you know funky place, sure. and and the beach in general, you know, d- uh, attracts, shall we say, eccentrics.
2: I and I will say a lot of those people are dead. And, yeah, uh, you know that's something that I think about a lot, and I think about the fact that we were living hard a lot of us a lot of us were living in um houses that weren't super safe we were doing things that weren't super safe we were perhaps buying drugs from people that we didn't know um we were we were young we were never gonna get hurt Mm -hmm. and so being impenetrable and having so much fun really um that freedom was incredible until it wasn't and for me that was when denver died
0: tell us who denver was
2: so denver del monte lucas was um in power dresser and he was an amazing amazing person and he i mean i don't know how much history you want probably not a lot because this podcast isn't like 17 hours long um give it
0: give it to us man we're all about the details
2: Okay. Uh, so Denver, and I'm probably going to tell us wrong. Gabe's going to kick my ass, but um, what it's all about. So uh, Denver was dating Ilea Tanuda, who um, later became the singer in heavy vegetable and had a kind of a, was living in a, in a weird circumstance, um, not a, around here and sort of packed up and moved here to be with Ilea and then that sort of ended up not working out, but he ended up staying. And he and Gabe were very close and they started playing music together. And he was an amazing, amazing influence in my life, taught me so much. He disappeared one night. He and Chris and a couple of other people did a bunch of drugs, did a bunch of acid and went running around on the cliffs at night and they got separated and he was gone and his body washed up a week later after we had been searching for him you know putting up flyers trying to figure out if he'd left town and that was really for me I'd experienced death before but not like that that was my first where I was like oh right okay we aren't invincible you know we things happen, then it <laughs> then it's snowballed from there. people just start dying left and right. So as as happens in a scene like ours where we have people who are creative and amazing and fearless and want to experience everything
0: burning brightly exactly what drugs were was was and I, when I lived in North County I just I remember working at uh, Lucadia pizzeria. And it was basically like a meth distribution uh, hub, (laughs) you know, for for that area. Thinking back, of course, as a teenager, I was like, whatever. I mean, I didn't do it. I just saw, you know, people selling it and stuff like that. I mean, was that a drug that you you remember being around a lot? Or was that sort of a different scene?
2: No, not in the scene at all. No, Um, it was definitely people were smoking pot and... Doing a lot of hallucinogens and figuring out different ways of doing um, different, different hallucinogens. So things like Don Pedro um, and other things, because nobody had a, a line on ayahuasca at that point. So you right. just worked with what we had.
0: Right. Yeah. So this was all pre-internet time oh, yeah. that you're talking about. Yeah. Right. So <laughs>
2: pre-internet, pre-cell phone. Yeah pre eowid the site pre, where you get can-
0: pre, pre-erowid. Yeah, <laughs>
2: exactly.
3: Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. the uh, internet has definitely spread psychedelic understanding and knowledge and access far and wide now, huh? Yeah, sure
3: have.
0: So true. Tell us more about the time that that time uh, and your relationship with Rick and different things that he was doing at that time.
2: I think for me, one of the things that was that really stands out as I you know as I've been thinking about this. Um, you know, in the past couple of months is, and this is what one of the things that I was gonna say at the memorial, um, but we ran out of time. But, you know, we all have our different stories and we all have a different story of who Rick is, and we all experience different a different person, I think. Yeah. To some extent. And mine was of a kind of a rad homebody, you know, who played music in his room and You know, we he'd go to record, and I'd go with him, and it was fun. And but he also would all of a sudden say, like, I want to learn how to do this certain kind of etching. You know, and we'd go to the library, and he'd get all these Goya books, and he would he would just literally sit down and teach himself how to do something. It was I I had never seen anything like that before. I didn't know that people could learn like that, and. So he would, we had friends who blew glass. And so he would go and, and blow glass and do things like that. And he made me this amazing lamp where he had flattened out a piece of glass and and then etched a, a picture into the glass and made it into a lamp. So yeah, he he was just always creating and always, you know, learning how to do things. I always, and I was so glad that Britt got to experience this, but some people are like, what? He cooked? <laughs> You know, he was a really good cook. So we would you know cook together and you know we, I don't think we had a TV. Um, you know we listened to a lot of records and we went to the ocean and talked a lot, you know, talked I think in the same way that Britt was 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 saying about talking about books and talking about politics and you know, I think that he was probably one of the first people that I had a really serious conversation with about um, Israel and Palestine. As a Jew, it was really great to have a conversation that was nuanced. And, you know, this is in the late 80s, you know, it wasn't like it was there was a lot of people talking about Palestine at that point um, in our in our particular movement. I mean, so it was I, I feel like we were always learning from each other. And I really appreciated that about him.
0: What were some of the books and authors that he was into or subjects and, and
2: yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Brit hit it on the head with Alan Watts and other, um, I don't want to say ilk cause that it makes it seem bad cause it's not. Um, but other, um, uh, writers in that genre of sort of expanding your consciousness, looking at, at the world, looking at life, but then also really amazing art books and would, would, uh, you know, we'd go to the UCSD library and check out amazing artists that I had never heard of. And he was just constantly absorbing. And that was one of the things that I really appreciated because I had dropped out of high school and was in the process of teaching myself the things that I felt were important for me to learn. And I learned in the exact same way that Rick did. You know, I found things that were interesting to me. And then I learned about them and I—I'm maybe I learned that from him.
0: Did, did Rick ever attend classes anywhere after high school, like uh, community college or anything? Like if he's doing etching and things like that, do you recall?
2: Yeah,
1: I do. Um, he had a short stint at the community colleges uh, Palomar and Miracosta. He definitely took life drawing classes at Miracosta, which some pretty funny stories have. Sprung <laughs>
0: over the tell, years. T- t- tell them.
1: <laughs> well, um that was a good way to make money to be a nude model in these classes. So Rick would post up um in the class and actually he audited these classes. I don't think he ever officially enrolled. And he was, you know, far far advanced um at this point but knew the the importance of being able to really draw a live nude. So anyway, he was there in the class, um, and this happened often. Waiting for the model to arrive, and model comes in, gets situated, gets naked, looks up, eye to eye, Rick and someone he knows very well.
2: Yeah, because that was a really good. That was a good gig for us back <laughs> in the day. Oh yeah, because yeah, you-, you would you would get naked for literally like you know forty minutes, and I think yeah. you get you get like a hundred bucks. It was amazing.
1: And he would say,
2: (laughs) he'd say for the first
1: like three minutes, it was really awkward. And then she just became a problem to be solved.
0: Yeah, it gets pretty normalized fast. I've done some, uh, never modeling, but uh, drawing nude. Yeah. It's like, first it's a naked person, then it's just form.
2: Form. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
3: Exactly.
2: I was just going to say, and for the naked person, it's just pain it's like yeah. so hard not to move man. <laughs>
1: yeah. And yes. Jason there's another story I might share with you um someday probably not on this podcast. It's very it's very graphic, but it's so <laughs> um it involves a male model. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um but I I do want to say that you know being close to Rick um for all that time and then living with him finally he was a constant learner. I've never known anybody with such an appetite for knowledge, yeah, and like real knowledge, right? where, like Leah said, he had very nuanced opinions about things um not always popular perspectives, certainly not within you know our subculture. He was not afraid to develop his own ideas. um he had a formidable intellect, it never stopped every day he was. Thinking about how to solve something, how to understand something, wondering, I mean, I'm like a plant person, right? And so we we would go on walks and hikes all the time, and he would constantly be checking me, you know, what's this, what's that, what's this, what's that? And I would just, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not an arborist, I'll get back to you. But he was always keeping me on my toes and had and he was doing it because he genuinely wanted to know. He wanted to know. Everything he possibly could about this world. Yeah. and that also was a liability for him. you know he knew too much. he he and I would not talk about current events. It, it was kind of a if not a rule, it was a request I made pretty early on. I had to do a media ban when Trump came into office and it was a really a mental health measure. I do not regret it and I've kind of kept it up and he was mind blown at the concept. That you could just be like choose to be uninformed, and his his concern with that was that you could be well, a fool, you could be a, you could become a sucker. and we would debate that point a lot, and I understood his position. Um, but he would experiment with it, and I will tell you that when he loosened his grip on current events in the geopolitical landscape, he felt better. However, he he just had a need to know. And I thought it was, you know, highly respectable, even if it harmed him a little bit. M- mostly it didn't. Mostly it just made him really fucking present with life and and a really interesting person to be around. The conversations were endless. I mean, it's the thing I miss the most if I had to rank. I mean, it's, it's hard to say. Actually, I really... Would just love to touch his face. But um the conversations are were so enthralling and he had absolute um stamina for them, especially when he had a few fears. But he could literally go all night and talk about absolutely any subject under the sun. And he also was a great listener. And yeah. you know, he would even go like in the cat skills where he spent a lot of time during the pandemic, which I think really saved his you know, spirit, uh, because otherwise it was a very hard time for him, like so many people. Uh, He really tuned in, um, you know, to the nature channel there. And he also really uh, liked to just, like, go to the local bar in some weird Catskills town
0: uh, next to the one
1: that he got to stay in. And this was, like, all the fringe Element people, you know, like not not our fringe people, and he would sit there. Marshall, our good friend, Marshall, um, told me this story, and he would just listen. He genuinely wanted to understand what the fuck. So he would talk to Trumpers, he would talk to extremists, he would talk to NRA people, he would talk to you know people that he really did not align with on the level of values, but he. Felt like it was important to hear the other side and to have your own take on things. Like he never was wholesale, he never adopted a wholesale attitude on anything. And a lot of times, you know, it got him, if not into trouble, it 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 kind of set people back on their heels. But you know what? He kept everyone honest around him. And he was a great teacher in that respect, in many other respects. But but that one is something I, I really apply every day. I really pay attention to what I think and how I share it and how I listen because of him.
0: Yeah, that's a good example right there. Yeah, I heard somebody describe him at the memorial as being also a person free from ego. Do you, do you concur with that?
1: Well, everybody has an ego. Yeah. yeah. It, it keeps us alive. I think what Rick had was humility. You know he had he had enough ego to get up on, on a stage and have the confidence to do what he did and, and put the art out that he did and you had to you have to claim a certain power in that respect. and actually, he hated that word power because i I found him very powerful, and he felt like it attendant in that the you know um spirit of the word was abuse of power right. and so he never wanted to hear that he was powerful, but he, he was. And that ego, I think served him in those times when he had to call on that power a little bit, you know, you really, really put yourself in a very vulnerable position when you put out art and when you get on a stage and he didn't take any shit in that space. And I think there was a, he had to have a little bit of ego in order to kind of have that relationship with his audience, but Rick was truly, huh, to a fault, the most humble person by far I've ever known in my life. Rich Jacobs maybe is on the same level. <laughs> yeah, definitely, <laughs> but in such a different way, right? Um, Rick was very self-deprecating. To a fault, it, it's absolutely to a fault. It was painful, you know, yeah, to he hear totally. him say the things that he said or hold the perspectives that he did about himself and
2: and about his art.
0: Oh, self deprecating about his. Yeah.
2: Yeah. He just. What was the thing he wanted to call that show, Britt? Oh, God.
1: A wasted life.
3: Yeah. Which is, you
1: know, part of why we love Rick, right? Because, oh, my God, he's just so raw and terse and wry, but wrong. Wrong. Totally wrong. Very, very wrong. And I, I would tell him on the regular, babe, my greatest wish for you is that even for a flash that you can see what we see. Yeah.
0: Do you, Can you speculate on why he had that attitude towards himself and his work?
1: I mean, you know, I could get into the psychoanalysis of it. I have my own theories. Um, he had a lot of, a lot of pain in his origin story. And um, yeah, he took a position at a certain point in his life where whether it was true or whether he was a rebel and, just naturally was inclined towards outsider status. He, you know, he never did feel at home in this world. I will say that he felt at home in nature. He did not feel at home in society. And I think that he, he struggled with, you know,
2: worthiness. And I think he and, touched on that, Jason, when you were talking about the mother pain.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And yeah. I think that that was definitely a part of it. You know, the, the people, and I've, as someone who was raised by a psychoanalyst, I, you know, I, I think that you know we we operate from the models that were shown, and when you move into the world and become who you know who you're trying to be, the pictures that you have in your mind from when you were younger are are the things that you have to go off of. So, right. sort of like you know Rick saying he's he did he's a terrible guitar player or he's not a guitar player
1: and that he can't sing. He can't sing. And that he's not a artist, he's an illustrator. Right. But he is an artist who played guitar, you know, just however he had to sort of understand himself um in a way that didn't bolster or project any pretension or oh make God. him pretension. Put pr- no pretentiousness. Ev- I mean he was in he, he was allergic
2: pretension. to
1: pretension. Yeah. Bullshit oh. pretension, drama hyperbole, all those were his enemy. And he lived that every single day. That was not a front or uh, an aesthetic he adopted. That was truly him to his core. And he never, ever wanted anyone to feel like he was above them in any way. He didn't feel like he was. And he also just didn't want anyone to feel that anybody was above it, anybody at all, or better than or more powerful than or more worthy. Or
0: Yeah. Yeah, describing him. I think that these are all things that when I met him and was friends with them back in the day, I, I was just, yeah, naturally attracted to the guy for all those same reasons. You know, it's just, yeah, such a genuine, a genuine. genuine person. He, you know, like you were saying, whatever times where he could be prickly or whatever you want to say, depressive, uh, you know, it's like whatever aspects of him, you always appreciated the whole package being like, This is, you're getting the real thing. You're not getting some put on or some uh, personality that's bent to impress someone in particular or something, you know, which is just always refreshing in this world where so much of our encounters are full of artifice and acting, you know?
2: Yeah, he's a total asshole. Yeah. Mm Yes, absolutely.
1: 100%. He could. And and yet it wasn't coming from a place of wanting to bring anybody down. It no. was just him being honest, you yeah. know, and he didn't really adhere to filters or rules of like social mores. You know, he, he said what was in his mind and really in his heart to say, and I will, I will tell you, he told me on many occasions, his greatest fear in the world was to bum people out. He never wanted to bum anybody out. So. That was never intended if he did, but he could not help being who he was, which was the genuine article, like it or not. Yeah. but you know it commended respect and and it was really great because I think he did naturally sort of weed out yeah. disingenuous people or people who needed um, that you know other kinds of treatment that maybe was not you know was more superficial. Rick was not superficial. And he didn't suffer superficial people. Yeah. Um,
2: it helped call the psychopaths, you know, like, it's like, if yeah. you're going to have a sycophant around you, you're it's, that's not going to be what, what Rick would have to worry about, you know, people around to keep him honest when, when shit like that was happening.
0: Yeah. I was thinking um how at the memorial, seeing that, incredible display of his art going back to the 80 early 80s or before to the 70s really that with the bmx stuff um up to today and, and and then also seeing all the people there that loved him and his work like it was such an incredible retrospective of a person with such immense talent and drive you know and uh you know that seeing that survey done in you know just in the in a club it wasn't some museum survey of course but uh you know it could be in in it's a place someday. like that yeah and hopefully it will be someday and and then like you were saying with the um just, i'm thinking when you were talking about you know his nature weeding out the syncophants and things like that by being such a genuine character also the idea that you can be yourself warts and all and still be so beloved because no, the real, the main thing he was, was this beautiful person, you know, beautiful soul, beautiful artist. He
1: was. he was, that's so well said. And, you know, he, he would also say he, he really was only against people who were against him and he lived that too. He really accepted people and he really cared about people who accepted him.
0: And like you were talking about with the the bar and the Catskills, you know, hanging out with the people who might be.
3: Diametrically um, opposed, yeah,
0: you know it, it, to be interested and to have the artist's eye trained on all all of reality as opposed to just paying attention to what you want to see that's that also speaks to that um, yeah, openness,
2: so true. He didn't make it easy, though. I mean, when you talk about you know having people around him that kept him honest and loved him for who he was, he didn't make it easy to love him sometimes. And that is a, a part of him that I think about a lot. I think about a lot right now, because when we, when he moved back to San Diego, we had, um, (laughs) we had some words because I definitely was the, the, I don't know if I was his biggest bullshit caller, but I was definitely maybe like top five. And it was hard, you know, because I really told him the truth because I felt like he needed to hear it. And I do regret that because he passed before I could, I could work that out. It's the second time that's happened to me.
0: (laughs) Was this about like the drinking and that sort of thing?
2: I mean, it was about all sorts of things, but it was... I don't really want to go into the specifics, sure. but it was definitely, I mean, we, we can talk about drinking if you want to. Cause I, you know, when I was going to get up and speak at the memorial and we ran out of time, that was definitely one of the things that I was going to speak about. So yeah, go there. Yeah. Um, you know, I am sober and have been for like nine years or something. And one of the things that you know, I was thinking about was that Rick and I knew each other before we were both drunks, Hmm. which is kind of amazing. And one of the things that I was going to say to that beautiful audience of gray haired, smoking, drinking, (laughs) beautiful people was that we have this one skin bag. That's it. And for those of you out there in the crowd who think that you can keep smoking and drinking like you were 25, you can't, your body doesn't sustain that anymore. And you have to take better care of it because there are people who love you and want you to be here. You know, I wanted to tell everyone in that room that I loved them and that I wanted them to take better care of themselves and to treat their bodies with respect and kindness and love.
0: Yeah. I second that.
2: It was hard for Rick to do. Yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, definitely on more than one occasion, Rick calling me in the middle of the night from New York and asking me how I quit drinking Mm -hmm. by the next day. It was like, I'm fine.
0: Yeah, when did the drinking start? Because I mean, in our, my teenage years with him, that wasn't a part of our scene together at all. I don't recall yeah. him smoking weed or anything.
2: No, I mean, I think it probably. I mean, I don't know for yeah. sure, but I would, I would guess probably with Drive Like Jehu. Yeah.
1: Halfway, yeah, halfway through Drive Like Jehu.
2: Yeah, second album. It's
1: when he started to really enjoy it.
0: And that's like touring and things like that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah yeah on tour and it was it was you know it was a mixed bag for for everyone in his life because you know leah and i would kind of joke <laughs> he would come to town and play and on the nights we weren't able to like go to dinner before or whatever and we would just see him at the show and, and say okay what version did you get tonight you know and it was like hot or cold and it was always before drinking or after drinking and it's very common, right? I mean, it's a sh- it's a social lubricant, and um, but it really, really worked for Rick in terms of relaxing. I mean, he was we used to call him old man when we were in our twenties. Yeah, he was an uptight dude. He was he was definitely grumpy. You know, I mean, he struggled with depression for sure. Um, but he he just had a hard time kind of just being in the world. We all do. The way it came across with him was, you know, reserved and uncomfortable a lot of the time, Um, which, God, I just give him so much credit for fucking getting on those stages, you know, 40 years, despite feeling that way and just completely putting himself out there in the, you know, in the most raw way. But the, the alcohol really helped. He was a happy drunk. So it was hard for people for us to completely hate his drinking, right? I mean,
2: yeah, because what an amazing thing. Grumpy Rick turns into super happy. I love you. I love you. It's so good to see you. Give me hugs and kisses. It's and it was I, genuine. I it mean, was so it real.
1: Was so real. Like it was just all the things he wanted to be able to say on a regular basis
2: and couldn't. And he
1: was challenged too. Mm-hmm. And so it, you got all the goods, you know, when he was drinking um and then you know it, it also allowed him to work with his art form and he didn't he didn't need to when he drew maybe mm-hmm. he would you know smoke a joint or something or get high a little just to focus but it was all about the you know performing um aspect and then in general yeah like i think it just got more and more so because he lived in brooklyn and that's what you do in new york city is you go to bars And at least for his peer group, he said that really was the only social option. And then when the pandemic came, um, it got real intense for him because he was isolated and he couldn't go to those bars, but he still wanted to drink and there was no monitoring it. Um, So, you know, it just kind of kept evolving. And when he moved here, he he really tried. He took three months off. Yeah, I could go into, you know, more, but we had an understanding. Um, I was not going to try to change him. I was not going to make requests of him that would um, compromise his sovereignty. And that was an opportunity for a level of unconditional love that I was, I got my ass handed to, (laughs) right? Like that was when the rubber really hit the road for my love and respect of him that I sat back and let him have his journey. And I supported him in every way that I could. And I created a sanctuary for him. And I loved the hell out of him. And, you know, tried to feed him really good food. And made him cook me really good food. And, you know, we got into nature a lot and whatever. Um, but, yeah, he he had a really close relationship with alcohol. And he, he finally just kind of made his peace with it. You know, he played around with how often to drink. And um, he was really trying. He was still really trying but in the, in the sense of monitoring, but he was never going to stop drinking. That yeah. was his, that was his medicine.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing you can do. I mean, at that, at that point, this point in life, it's like people, it's such a personal choice. Everything is, it's so deeply rooted. Yeah. You just, to a certain point you just have to love and accept people as they are or create boundaries, whatever you have to do, but it's like, let them that live too. their lives. Yeah. Trying yeah. to, trying to do other side, otherwise exercise in frustration and disappointment.
1: Total futility. Yeah. Yes. And, and I didn't want, you know, that to be, I didn't want to be at battle with my the love of my life. Yeah. Right. I wanted to inspire him to make healthy choices, if anything. But really, I just wanted him to feel free.
0: How did you guys go from your long-term friendship to being in a relationship?
1: God, it was one of those for us both like totally unexpected things that made perfect sense to everybody but us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah we you know we were we've been very close friends throughout and we had one of our dinners that we always did when he was in town he was still living in Brooklyn and I had just gotten out of a marriage um, he was not seriously involved with anybody and it just aligned one night you know I literally just wanted to make out out of curiosity because we could and um, all of our feelings that we'd been burying for the last three decades took us to a very different place very quickly so it was kind of like this cataclysm like a a very radical event um our lives changed (laughs) overnight with that and um i i can't say it was a total fairy tale because there was actually a lot of um we both felt like it was a really big deal and that we had to proceed with caution and it took us five years before we actually formalized. So we were doing a lot of back and forth, cat and mouse, hot and cold, figuring it out. He took on a re- another relationship. There was um, a lot of heartbreak on my end. I had to figure my shit out and get honest with myself, you know, whatever. It was a really important process, actually, very educational. And when I was finally at peace with it, he showed up in my life in a very serious Way two years ago, um, and he was ready. And because I had gotten technically over him, I was ready too. And I, you know, resisted it for about five minutes, and then and then I surrendered. And I have no regrets. It's really been a highlight of my life. And um, he always has, in one way or another, been the love of my life. He's always been the most inspirational figure and force in my life. And that's saying a lot because I have some phenomenally inspiring friends. One of them is on this call. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. But yeah, it was uh, it was like the most natural thing. And it also was the most destabilizing thing, you know, because we, we had had such a stable friendship with no drama and no ups and downs and no difficulty. And stepping into a romantic relationship brought in a whole new world of how to relate. With one another. And it wasn't easy. <laughs> we would laugh about it would be like, God damn, for 30 years it was nothing but <laughs> harmony. We get together and we're like fighting all the time. <laughs> but it was never drama fighting. It was just, you know, trying to figure out how to, to share a life. And we had very different lifestyles. That was that was very challenging. And we're both extremely independent. And he had an even stronger need for space than I at times, which is saying a lot. And then there were times when all he wanted to do was be with me and not with his friends, you know? And so it was just kind of always negotiating how, how, what kind of couple are we going to be? And I'd like to say we figured it out before he died. We got to a really important place in our relationship where I think we returned to this place of like core love and devotion and let ourselves just meet in that like vaster space of connection. Without having to like really understand how to do a relationship, right? Yeah, and that unconditional space, um, and that literally happened the morning before he died.
0: How long had he been back in San Diego before he passed?
1: A year and a half—not very long. Yeah. But I really feel like, honestly, he was on borrowed time. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and I can now really see a, a clear picture. I think that Rick needed to come home. I think that he needed to reconnect with his family, with his friends, with his bandmates. And he needed to come full circle with me. And um, we got to do that. Of course, it felt like we were just getting started. But I really have to think about what it meant for him. Um, And I, I think that it was a homecoming and a way to wrap up a very beautiful, challenging life.
0: Yeah. I'm glad he made that move. Leah, what do you hold in your heart about Rick going forward in your life? Or what do you want to share? Is there like a memory or one thing that you'd like to?
2: You know what? I actually, I, 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 I don't know if this is what you're saying, but I am going to say this, which is that it's, it's, it's more of what I said earlier. We have to, we have to understand that this is the life that we get. And we have to understand that our body is the only body that we get. And we have to understand that the friendships and the people that we surround ourselves with are the people that um, are the most important to us and require the most care and love. And I would have stood in front of a bullet for Rick. And I know that he knew that. And he wouldn't have stood in front of a bullet for himself. And I want other people to look at how they feel. And if there are people around them that are saying, I'm worried about you or, gee, I really, you know, I had to pick you up off the floor again last night and we're not 25. And I love my friends so much. And I've lost so many of them. <laughs> and I would prefer to not bury any more of them. And I would like them to please take care of themselves. And I loved him. I loved him deeply. He changed my life. And um, I'm glad that I met him. I'm glad that he was such an important part of my life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Britt? How about you? What, what, what will you take from this relationship? How, uh, how is your life affected going forward?
1: Kind of the million-dollar question, right now. Um, you know, Just I really
0: as of today. You know,
1: yeah, as of today, I I felt like you know I was on the precipice of like the best chapter of my life, having partnered with the man of my dreams, even though he was complicated and maybe not super healthy physically. Um, I was hopeful. We had so many plans. We had so many ideas, so much we wanted to collaborate on. I find myself having to completely reorient myself to a reality that you know I never would have chosen. But in the spirit of Rick and all that he imparted here, I'm going to treat it as a creative opportunity. I'm going to fall more deeply in love with life for him and do the things that I know he would want for me. Some of that includes um, whatever is in my heart to do in regards to him. So that will be preserving and advancing his archive in a very serious way starting a foundation to fund that effort to keep his work in the world because it was an uplifter and the world needs more of it. There is a little bit more that can come that hasn't been seen. And I also just want people to have access to the arc of his work, the the whole breadth of what he created because it's astonishing and it does change lives. And I get messages on the daily from people who say as much. So I want more of that for the world. And I want more of that selfishly for me. Rick is is always going to be a part of all of us. And whatever we we do moving forward, will have that love and acceptance and inspiration that he planted within us. And I think I'd like to think I did have a dream last night that he told me I'm going to love where he is right now. When I get there that we all are going to love it.
2: You're going to love lo- it.
1: Here. We're gonna love it. <laughs> we're going to love, we're going to love this place. We're going to love that place. Um, and I think that, you know, we uh, have a lot to do before we get there. And he is going to be sitting wherever he, I don't know how any of this stuff works. I have a sense he's, he's definitely inspired a lot of <laughs> I'm going to say he's re-upped my faith in the unseen. I don't want to go too far into that to freak people out, but Rick was very powerful in life and I find him very powerful in death. And I had a few big losses before he died um, that kind of flattened my faith in the mystery, so to speak. And um, he's doing his damnedest to bring that back for me. And I probably for others because he had a belief in something bigger too. And he wasn't afraid to talk about that um, or explore that. But I think that wherever that is for him right now, he is kicking back and looking at his favorite chair in the backyard. He would smoke in and do his Rick, you know, chuckle and bemusement and brooding. And he's not brooding anymore. He's bemused and he is going to be watching and listening for what we do with this new us in the wake of his life
0: thank you so much both of you for coming on the podcast and sharing your impressions thoughts feelings experiences and uh i'd love to have you back on in a a year or something and see where you're at with like the the uh archives and all that sort of work and just and life in general
2: Let's yeah, do it.
0: thank you so much, Jason. Awesome. Yes, we'll be in touch. So it's so good you to too. be back in touch with both of you and I love you both very much. and awesome. Rick, Froberg yes, Rick, Fro- Rick Froberg forever.
2: Yes, Rick you Rick Froberg forever.
0: Now, you might be thinking, well, Rick didn't play in the big boys. That's the big boys doing red green. And that's true. He was not in the big boys. But at the memorial, it was revealed that this was the song that made Rick want to play guitar. I always loved this song myself. Now I love it even more. Rick Froberg Forever.